This morning's reading is from Acts 20, verse 17 through 24. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is God's word. It's true, and it's given out of his love. You guys can be seated. Amen. Thanks, Brandon. Well, it's good to see everyone. How are we all doing today? feels a little bit like we had our first cold weekend of the year. Fall is here. It seems like summer's gone until tomorrow when it's 85 degrees again and all that. But it does seem just a little bit like we all, some of us uh, lost a lot of our energy over the weekend. Like sometimes you can come into the gym and feel like it's bursting with life and joy. And other times it just feels a little bit more heavy. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to X out probably half of the jokes I was planning on telling just to reflect the mood that we have. But I also just wanted to say like this idea of like, hey, if, this, if you are feeling heavy when you come in here, we, this is not something arbitrary we make up when we want to say that this is like a safe place to be. Like if you've had a great week or a bad week, whatever's going on in your life, like sitting in the presence of Jesus with God's people, singing his praises, studying his word, uh, being encouraged by those around you, encouraging those people at your table, all of that is something that this is the most important thing you can do on a Sunday morning. Uh, And so it's good for your soul to be here. It's good that you are here. And we're we're glad that we can study God's word together uh, as we get started. So we're going to continue our our study through the book of Acts. Uh, Last week I mentioned that my favorite book is Les Miserables, which I still don't know how to pronounce, even though it's my favorite book. Uh, But my second favorite book is a uh, Tale of Two Cities. I don't know if you guys have read the Charles Dickens one. There's some excitement. Yes, finally, the Tale of Two Cities. Nothing like the French Revolution and beheadings to get people really, really going in the morning. Um, but the, the, if you haven't read it, I'm going to ruin the ending for you. Uh, it is 150 years old, so you had plenty of opportunity to read it before I spoiled the ending. But the last part, the last scene, is the reason it's so it's a great book is that it is so powerful, the climactic scene at the end, where one of these characters named Sidney Carton is, actually substitutes himself uh, and gives his life to save the life of another person. Okay, and, and the thing that makes it interesting is as we move towards that end, there's several different places where he's, it's like he's on a highway. He could have had the off-ramp and taken the off-ramp and not have ended up being executed. He could have saved his own life, but he knows if he saved his own life that the person he was substituting for would have died instead. And so, so even though he had these potentials to get off of this path of suffering, to take the off-ramp, he endured to the end, and he ends up... the the book ends with him getting his head cut off uh, as a way of sacrificing himself for someone else. And I think when you hear that, like these are the last words of this, of this uh, book, uh, Tale of Two Cities. He says, it is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. And I'm sure you've heard those lines before because it's such a powerful ending to a book. And when, when you read that, there's a part of us as humans that we, we connect with that deeply and we, and we, say, we want to believe that. 
I mean, we say, yes, that, that is true. It's not just that self-sacrifice is a good thing, but self-sacrifice is the best thing. That, that is the best thing he could have done. We, we want to say that's what we were created for. That's how humans should live, is willing to lay down our lives in order to uh, protect other people. Uh, the problem is, as much as we affirm that, as much as we agree with that principle, uh, it doesn't take much suffering in our life, much difficulty in our life before we think, wait a second, something's going wrong. And, and those off-ramps, the idea of like getting out of the path of suffering, out of the path of sacrifice, and finding our own comfort, those off-ramps get more appealing the harder our lives get. That's something that's uh, in, inherent in all of us. And I think with our faith in Jesus, our following Jesus Christ, that, that it can feel the same way. We want to say, yes, I will follow Jesus no matter what it costs me. Whatever he asks of me, I will be willing to sacrifice myself in order to be true to my Lord and Savior. But again, the problem is, is a little bit of suffering comes into our life, a little bit of difficulty, and no matter how small, we start to question whether or not we're doing the right thing. We start to ask God, like, wait a second, what's going on? Why are you allowing this pain in my life? You know, we've all heard that phrase, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And in our minds, wonderful and painful cannot coexist. So if there's pain in our life, it must mean that God's wonderful plan has come crashing down around us. And we start to look for those off-ramps where we say, how could I pursue comfort? How can my life get back to running the way that I want it to run instead of the path of following Jesus? So, so here's why this is important for us as we study the book of Acts. As we've gone through this, this is like week 32 or something in the study of the book of Acts. And what we've seen almost every single week is that as followers of Christ, the Spirit, if you are a believer in Jesus, the Holy Spirit resides in you. And because the Spirit resides in you, you have been given a spiritual gift. You've been given a ministry. You've been given the opportunity to proclaim how great Jesus is and to give of yourself for the glory of Jesus. That's what it means to have a ministry. We all have a ministry God is calling us to. But we also know as we evaluate our lives and our experience and our ministries that that ministry God has given us often comes with great difficulty. And the more difficulty that our ministry brings, the more difficulty that being obedient to Jesus brings, the more appealing those off-ramps begin to sound. It seems like maybe we could find a way to get our life back to the comfortable place that we want to go. So this morning, we're going to look at uh, Paul's journey. He's headed towards Jerusalem, and he's going to have several different off-ramps that seem very appealing. Seems like this is a really good place to just call it a day, close up shop, and, and go pursue something else. But instead, Paul endures, and we're going to see from his story what Jesus is teaching each of us in the midst of our own ministries and difficulties. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and how um, no matter what kind of week we've had, no matter where we're coming in here today, um, we know that your word is alive and active, uh, that it, your spirit uses it to shape and mold us, to convict us, to strengthen us. And so I pray that uh, your word would do your work this morning, that as we read this and study this, that we would see a picture of who you are and all of your glory, and that from that worshipful posture, we would be able to leave here more in love with you than when we came. Yes, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So that passage that Brandon read as we got started, like this is the, Paul is wrapping up his third missionary journey. He is headed towards Jerusalem. And so as he heads to Jerusalem, the reason we had to study that passage or read that is because nothing that takes place is going to make sense without three of those verses there. So if you want to look again at verse 22 and through 24, uh, this is how Paul describes himself to the elders in Ephesus. He says, now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
Okay, remember that phrase, uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? You listen to Paul describe what he's doing. He says he's constrained by the Spirit. The only thing he knows about his future is that imprisonment and afflictions await him when he arrives in Jerusalem, and he's going anyway. And it kind of makes you want to scratch your head and be like, Paul, are you, are, what's going on in your life? Why, uh, did, you, did you watch too many depressing movies lately, even listening to some sad music, uh, reading just the Old Testament? This sounds like an Old Testament version of God, right? That's about pain and suffering. It's not about the New Testament Jesus who's just soft and cuddly. He would never ask us to do anything difficult, right, Paul? That's kind of how we approach his thinking. But look what happens as he continues this obedient obedience to Jesus. Chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. It says, and when we had parted, so Luke, uh, the author of Acts, is back with Paul again. It says, and when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre. And from, the, and from there, the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. That's a really interesting phrase. When our days there had ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So this is his progressing on his journey. If you followed the map, he would have crossed over from Greece. He's landed uh, just a little ways north of Jerusalem on his path. And some things that stand out here is they land in the city of Tyre. Paul apparently doesn't know anyone in the city, so he begins to look for other Christians. And, And even though he doesn't know these people, most likely, after spending only a few days with them, their hearts are so knit together that they're they're weeping and praying as they as Paul begins to leave. There's There's this affection that grows between brothers and sisters in Christ that we see here and we've seen all throughout the book of Acts. It's a beautiful picture of what it means to be a follower of Christ is that you are a part of a new family. And when you come into the family of God, everyone in this room who is also a believer in Jesus is your brother and sister in Christ. And we can have that same affection that Paul had with these people here, even though they were just new acquaintances here. The other thing that we see is interesting, I think, is that when they pray before they leave, it says that they all kneel down and they pray together. And I think we don't talk often enough about our body postures, our physical bodies, and how our physical bodies can align with and facilitate what God is doing in our hearts. So there's something to like, you can pray in any any posture you're at. You can pray out loud. You can pray quietly in in your own head. You can do it standing or kneeling or laying down, whatever it is. But there's something about certain activities that our bodies do that get our souls in line with what God is trying to do in our hearts. So, so when they kneel by the beach, kneeling is a sign of submission. It's a sign of reverence. They're showing that they're submitting their prayers to God's will. And I, I think even like at our church, sometimes like a lot of people when we're singing songs, people raise their hands. And we wonder if you're not from a tradition that does that, it's like, why are we raising our hands? But it's something deep in the human soul that knows when I am responding to something, my body needs to engage what I'm doing. Okay, and here's all the evidence you need for that. Today, uh, the NFL season kicks off, which means the largest churches in the country is 16 different churches around the country world that seat 80,000 people. And for their worship service, they have 22 men on the field playing this game for about three hours. And what happens when one of those worship leaders scores a touchdown? Everyone in the stands stands up and they raise their hands, right? Their, their body can't help but celebrate what they're seeing happen on the field. And so we believe as Christians, if Jesus has taken our sin upon himself, if he has offered us forgiveness and grace and mercy and fellowship with God, then how can we not respond to what Jesus has done by worshiping him? 
Okay, that's why when fans yell in the stands, it's the same thing we're doing here every Sunday morning when we sing Jesus' praises. We're saying that our body needs to align with what God is doing in our hearts. That's what happens when they kneel by the beach. But the important thing here for us this morning as we're studying this passage to the sea is that phrase where it says, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So these people at this city have this prophetic word. They receive something from the Lord, and they're telling Paul through the Spirit, they're receiving this prophecy that Paul should not go on to Jerusalem. But then Paul goes anyway, and that should be very interesting to us. Let's see what happens as we keep going. Verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived in Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So again, I think this, Luke is telling this story. He was recounting the events that he actually lived through. And I think in order to do this passage of justice, we need to feel the same tension that Luke and all of Paul's companions would have felt in this moment. Okay, so, so, so pay attention to what's happened now. Paul had a prophetic word from the Holy Spirit while he was in Ephesus that going to Jerusalem would lead to his suffering. He goes to the second city of Tyre and people full of the Holy Spirit tell him through the Spirit that if he goes to Jerusalem, he will suffer and he shouldn't go. Now he arrives in this next city. This is like the neighboring city to Jerusalem. He's only 60 miles away from his destination and he receives a third prophecy, a third word from the Holy Spirit that says he, he, if he goes to Jerusalem, he will suffer. And so because of that, all these people who love Paul begin pleading with him saying, what are you doing? You have to take that off ramp. If, if, if you keep going on this path, you're going to end up in Jerusalem and God is telling you there will be pain for you there. When there's this nice, easy exit ramp, you could just hang out here. Or heck, go back to Ephesus. Go anywhere else besides Jerusalem. But obviously, Jerusalem is not the place you should go because the only thing awaiting you in Jerusalem is more pain and suffering. So, so it's, it's one thing for us to say, I feel God's leading me to do something. I'm going to gear up for something difficult in my future. It takes a whole nother degree of um, fortitude and endurance and grit to say, even when people who love me are pleading with me not to do something, I'm going to do what I think God is calling me to do. Okay, that is a whole nother realm of obedience to God that Paul is demonstrating here, that we have to talk about what's going on in this situation. That off-ramp seems very appealing. So listen to how Paul responds to all of their pleas. Verse 13, he says, Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And with some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So if you th put yourself in Paul's position, Right? There's been three prophecies saying, if you go to Jerusalem, you will suffer. People who love you are pleading with you not to go to Jerusalem. Why in the world would Paul have continued on that same path? Again, that off-ramp seems very appealing in this instance. And so there's also this question of like, what's happening here? Why did he do this? I mean, Because what these people are saying is, the Holy Spirit is telling us you shouldn't go. 
So there's the question then of like, why did Paul go anyway? Is Paul being brave and is he sticking to his plan? Or is he being foolish and disobedient to what the Holy Spirit's saying? Is Paul actually sinning here by not listening to what the Spirit is saying through these other people? Or another option I guess you could say is maybe God changed his mind, right? Maybe God gave him the first prophecy. He said, go to Jerusalem. And then he's like, oh crap, actually don't go to Jerusalem. I forgot there's gonna be pain and suffering there. You should do something else instead, right? There's all kinds of crazy things that you could take from this passage if we're not appreciating what God is doing here in these words. But again, the thing I want us to see is, is that internal desire, even Paul feels that, to take that off-ramp. When he says, what are you doing breaking my heart? The, the, another way you could translate that is, what are you doing? You're weakening my resolve. Okay, that your tears and your, weak, and your weeping is making it more difficult for me to do what I think God is calling me to do. So in order to understand what's happening here, we have to talk a little bit about this gift of prophecy. Okay, so prophecy isn't something that we we talk about enough. I think it's a very important gift that God still uses in the church today to encourage uh, his people. Um, There's there's two different camps uh, theologically. There's people that are cessationists who would say that the gift of prophecy ceased or it stopped after the completion of the New Testament. Uh, When I was in college, I did everything I could to try to become a cessationist. It just seemed so much more clean and neat and tidy, but I just couldn't find myself convinced by the scriptures. And so, so we as a church do believe that the gift of prophecy is something that God still can and does use today. Uh, it's something we need to talk about. And, uh, it's important to understand it correctly because there's a lot of ways it's misused. And I think if we're honest though, when we read a passage like this where we hear about prophecy, we kind of just move on from it like it's something that happened that God used to do back then that doesn't have any impact on us now, right? I mean like reading that Philip had four daughters who, pro- who would prophesy you might as well read that Philip had four daughters who were Jedi or, or Philip had four daughters who were wizards. You're like, Philip must have started Hogwarts or something there in Caesarea to get this started. And it seems about as applicable to us as reading Harry Potter does. It doesn't seem like it actually applies to what's happening. But I think if we understand prophecy important, it, it is an important thing to, to interpret this passage here today. And so, so one of the uh, uh, authors I really appreciate on this topic is named Sam Storms. And he, his definition of prophecy is very simple. He says, prophecy is the human report of divine revelation. Okay, the prophecy is the human report of divine revelation. I think the reason we get scared when we hear people start talking about prophecy is it sounds like we're going to do something to undermine the word of God, right? A lot of people have some very legitimate concerns because they've seen prophecy used in a way that makes the Bible seem less authoritative than whatever this word or prophecy is that someone says they received from God. And so we want to be, as a church, we want to say that we can have in both of our hands two things that we hold to very tightly. One is that scripture is the authoritative word of God. We are never going to let go of that. God has given us all we need for life and godliness in his word. It is completely sufficient for salvation. It is clear in what it teaches. It is, it is authoritative. We need to submit to it. And it is necessary. If you don't submit to the word of God, you're going to miss out on who Jesus really is. But the other thing I think we want to hold on to as well is this idea that, that God desires relationship with us. Like that the spirit inside of us desires us to have an intimate connection with Jesus. It's not something where you just read words on a page and you move on. The Holy Spirit allows the words of God to sink into our hearts and he has given us this gift where he he continues to speak to us. Okay, like what if God is still using prophecy to encourage the church and we, because of a theological construct that we've adopted, have just said, no, God's never gonna do that to us. I think we might be cutting off something that God has given us that could bless us. And so, so with that, again, prophecy is the human report of divine revelation. Here's some, here's some qualifications that are important to understand when we talk about prophecy. Prophecy, if it's from Jesus, if it's from the Spirit, will never contradict Scripture. 
it will always align with and come under the authority of Scripture. And so, so if that's the case, if, when someone receives a prophecy from God, the way to understand that has to be a part of the body of Christ because there's another spiritual gift called the gift of discernment. God has given some people the gift of prophecy and other people the gift of discernment. And someone with the gift of discernment comes alongside someone who has the gift of prophecy and helps clarify this is what God is doing through this prophecy. Another thing to clarify is, is usually prophecy is not telling the future. Okay, like in this instance in Acts, it is, but for the most part, when we read about prophecy in the New Testament, it's a word of encouragement God is doing. It's not telling the future. So if you remember uh, the Super Bowl, it's probably like three or four years ago. Ladies, I apologize for the second football illustration to start the, the today, but uh, a few years ago in the Super Bowl, Tony Romo was announcing, and it was creepy because like every single play, he predicted what would happen before it even happened. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, Tony Romo is like a prophet or something. How does he know what's happening? Uh, and and what, what's happening in, in that situation was he just knew the game of football really well. And a lot of times we think that prophecy, if it's from God, is going to predict something in the future, but that's not how it usually works. Normally what it is is God is giving someone an image or a picture or a word or something to go to another person and encourage them with information that they wouldn't have had if it wasn't for God's divine revelation in that moment. Okay, another clarifying thing is that uh, prophecy is not only for the elite. Okay, it's not like it's some special class of Christian that if you have the gift of prophecy, you're on a pedestal ahead of everyone else. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that he wishes everyone would prophesy. He says, I, I, w- I would that all had the gift of prophecy. So in that case, what we put all this together and what we see is, is prophecy is a, it's a gift from God. It's something miraculous and mysterious, but it's also common and accessible and something that is, is on the table for all followers of Christ, that we should desire the spiritual gifts. Okay, so this is like a three-minute little blurb on prophecy. We, when we went through 1 Corinthians uh, last year, we, we did a whole sermon. It's like an hour-long sermon on prophecy and tongues and all that. So if you want more information, I can get you that link to look at that. But the thing that needs to happen here, the reason this is important is because we have to deal with the the fact that Paul seems to be disobeying these prophecies that people are giving him here in this passage. There's been three different prophecies and he's going to Jerusalem instead. So again, there's those options. Is Paul being disobedient? Did did the prophet who received this word, did they get the information wrong? What's going on? And I think one of the best commentaries I read on this that was helpful said that uh, prophecy involves three different steps. Okay, there's a revelation where God gives someone, like I guess, an image or a picture or a word. There's an interpretation where someone interprets that, that word or image and says, this is what it means. And then there's the application. that This is what you should do in light of this prophecy from God. And what I think is happening in this passage is I do think God, through the Holy Spirit, is giving people a true prophecy of what's going to happen to Paul when he goes to Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested. He is going to suffer. Uh, the, well, the one prophet, Agabus, he does like an Old Testament move where he takes takes the guy's belt and he plays uh, charades where he ties his hands and feet and says, this is what's going to happen to you in Jerusalem, Paul. Like, you need to understand this is clear. Where everything gets confusing, though, is they move from that true prophecy, Paul will be arrested and suffer in Jerusalem, and they draw their own application. They draw their own conclusion. What, and what their conclusion is, if suffering awaits you in the future— God would not in any way want you to do that. So instead, you should take the steps to make your life as comfortable and as easy as possible and not go into that path if you know it is going to lead to suffering. And and here's why that's applicable to all of us is because, like I said, our ministries will involve difficulty. 
Okay, whatever God is calling you to do in your life, however he has equipped you and however he has positioned you, whatever the ministry is he is calling you to do to love people and to serve him, that ministry itself will bring difficulty into your life. And if we operate under the same assumptions as these people in Paul's life that says difficulty could never equal God's will, we're going to take those off ramps and we're not going to engage the ministry that God has called us to. And here's why this is important. If, if we can be honest with each other, right, this is a safe place. I've said that already. Um, none of us is doing well, are we? Like, I, I think if, if, you, if you had a scale of one to ten and you were completely vulnerable and clear, uh, we're all like a two, right? If you're, if you're having a really good day, you might be a three. And, and the people in your life that say they're an eight, they're just lying. Like, they're really good at it. They're like, we're all not doing well. These last few years, it's completely changed how we interact with the world. I think Kelly told me last night that she thinks the closest explanation of this would be like, if you were able to travel in time and talk to someone in 1946, what, what was it like to live on the other side of World War II after the whole world had just gone through that thing? I think that's a a good picture of why we're struggling in so many ways. But if you look at your life, there's basically like five different spheres that we kind of interact with as Christians, right? There's either our marriage and our singleness, if you're married or single. There's your parenting or discipleship or people that you're called to pour into. Uh, there's your, your work environment, your vocation, whether you're uh, stay at home or whether you work in the marketplace. Um, there's friendships and relationships, the peers, the people that you look to for encouragement. And then there's this, this ministry calling, this idea to serve and to, to use your gifts for the good of the body. And if you look at each of those five spheres, if you have one or two of those spheres going well right now, you, you are in the minority. I think most of us, three or four of those areas of our life, it just really feels like we're struggling. And we, we don't even know why. That there's just difficulty after difficulty. People are, are quitting jobs and moving across the country. Uh, people are leaving their spouses. Marriages are being strained. Uh, that people are, we're short with our kids and our tempers. Um, our workplaces are stressed. Our friendships are strained. All these things are going on. And the reason that it's important to, to t- be honest with this is the, the more tired we get, the harder our life gets, the more exhausted we get, those off-ramps seem way more appealing, right? I, I, I would, why would I keep going on this ministry when I can instead just take this easy exit and all of a sudden my life will be easier, right? I, and, and so when we get exhausted, again, it puts us at the center of our lives and we start to say, what's the best way for me to be comfortable, and, and I think that's probably the best explanation of why these last two years have felt so difficult is because we all had a few months where we were told we needed to be as selfish as possible and only do what you want to do. Stay at home. Don't go to work. Don't do anything. Uh, eat whatever you want to eat. Drink whatever you want to drink. Uh, work on your own home projects. Like do, do all your honey-do lists. Like everything was completely self-absorbed. And what we found is that selfishness is addictive. We love us some us, right? We love taking care of ourselves. We love focusing on ourselves. And then when what ministry inevitably requires of us, what Paul is inevitably being required of is saying, you need to give of yourself for the good of someone else. You're called to not focus on your own needs, but to pour yourself out for the good of those around you. And that is the exact opposite of what we have found so enticing. And, and so, so the question that we have to ask for Paul is how was Paul able to endure? If, if we're right and these two other prophecies were true, they're from God, they were just misapplied, what gave Paul the resolve to continue to be obedient even when those who loved him around him were pleading with him not to go to Jerusalem? And the thing that gave Paul that resilience was the fact that he was confident that it was God's will 
that he should end up in Jerusalem. That first prophecy that he himself received from the Holy Spirit was the most important one. Okay, back in verse 22 of chapter 20, he says that he was constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He had no other options. He was compelled by the Spirit. He was forced by the Spirit. He knew that God's will for him was to be faithful and obedient and go into Jerusalem, even if that meant suffering. That's the thing that gave him the resolve to be obedient when it seemed so easy to take the off-ramp instead. And so, so what happens then in response to that is also a beautiful thing. In verse 14, when everyone pleads with him to, to change his mind, when it's obvious he's not going to change his mind, what they all do is they say, let the will of the Lord be done. And I think you can either take that as like a resignation, like throwing up their hands, well, whatever, I guess God's sovereign, he'll work this out. What I think they're doing is it's a humble posture of submission saying, let the will of the Lord be done. God's sovereignty in the midst of difficulty and suffering is the most comforting blanket we can wrap ourselves in. Okay, when life is difficult, the thing that should bring us the most comfort is knowing that God's will will, in fact, be done. Um, Oswald Chambers says it this way. He says, to choose to suffer means that there is something wrong. Okay, to choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will whether it means suffering or not. Okay, that's how Paul was able to endure it because he knew what God's will was for him and he was obedient to that knowing that it would also bring with it some suffering. So if you evaluate your, okay, your, your ministry, like what is God calling you to do? How is he calling you to serve and to give of yourself for his glory and to love other people? And then evaluate the difficulties in your life. And what you have to do with putting those two things together is saying, I will be faithful to God's revealed will even if it brings difficulty. So if your marriage is difficult, God's will for you is to love your spouse sacrificially and selflessly, just like Jesus loves the church. If your, if your kids are frustrating you, God's will for you is to disciple them with patience and kindness and all the fruit of the Spirit and to love them and shape them into the men and women they're called to be. If your, your coworker is frustrating you and annoying you, God's will for you is to love them like Jesus loves them to put their needs ahead of your own so that you can model the gospel for them. If, if there is tension in your life, God's will for you is to, to bear with one another in love because love covers a multitude of sins. That's what we're called to do. And so we can be faithful to God's will even if that brings difficulty into our lives. And so the other thing that's fun to see here is uh, this encouragement of, of that's how the church has always done it. Endurance through difficulty is how God has always worked in his church. I, I love all the different names that are dropped in this passage. It's like a who's who list of some like hardcore gospel OGs that have been around since the beginning, right? So Philip shows up for the first time since chapter eight. Philip was one of the seven chosen to serve. His coworker was Stephen, who was the first martyr. Philip was used to bring the first Gentile convert into the church. I mean, all these amazing ministries were done by Philip. And when we last left him, it was 20 years ago when he went to this city of Caesarea to plant a church there. And we can assume he's been ministering faithfully for 20 years because his four Jedi daughters grew up and they continued to follow Jesus. And even that, the, his four daughters, we know from church history that the, the, the three of those four women lived into their 90s and they were friends with the church historian Papias, who was the chief source that Eusebius used when he wrote the authoritative work on the early church. Those, those four, three of those four women were used profoundly to bring encouragement to the church. Or Agabus and Nason, uh, two different people that we see listed here as well, 
that we know from Eusebius's church history that those two people were two of the 70 disciples who followed Jesus. That they were part of the 70 that were in that uh, kind of middle ring of people that, got, that Jesus sent out to do evangelism. And, and so, so with that, that, we see that their faithfulness is the thing that God used to build the church. Like they endured through difficulty. They endured through hardship. And that's the thing that God used to continue to grow his church. And so that idea of saying, rather than taking the off-ramp, I'm going to be faithful to the ministry that God has called me to. That's the takeaway from this passage we need to lean into. And, and, and this idea of being faithful amidst difficulty is, is challenging. Uh, in one sense, Paul is saying, I'm going to be faithful even if it means death. But I love where this passage goes next because it shows us sometimes the thing harder than death is just dying to yourself daily, dying to your own pride. Let's wrap up this passage uh, in verse 17 and following. This is a little bit longer section I'm going to read. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing to what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance with the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and he went into the temple, giving notice that when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each of them. So if you read on, you know that this decision to agree with what James is asking him to do, this is the decision that leads to, to Paul being arrested. Okay, this, this is the act of faithfulness that will lead to him being imprisoned and eventually beheaded in Rome several years after that. But, but what's happening here, because this is a longer section, is Paul has been the apostle to the Gentiles. Through his ministry, people who are, are not ethnically Jewish have, have come to worship Jesus. And because of that, there's some tension between the church in Jerusalem that is chiefly Jewish and the churches elsewhere in the Roman Empire that are chiefly full of Gentiles or non-Jewish people. And so there's this image that James, the person that James we read about here is the brother of Jesus who wrote the book of James we have in the New Testament. And there's this idea that James's ministry and Paul's ministry are in tension. That, one, that, that James is the Jewish guy and Paul is the Gentile guy and because of it, they preach different gospels. And what's happening here is they're both displaying unity, saying that a united church is what they are pursuing. And so what James is asking Paul to do is he's saying, hey, there's thousands of Christians here in Jerusalem who are zealous for the law, that they love their Jewish heritage. They're not sinning by continuing to circumcise their kids and to follow some of these cultural practices, but they are upset that they think you are telling other Jewish people to stop being Jewish and to engage in what the Gentiles are doing. So in order to, to heal that rift, we want you to humble yourself, to, to, to take four of these people to the temple and pay for their vow that they're doing, which we saw Paul did the same thing in chapter 18. It's a Nazarite vow where you engage for a period of time. You don't shave your head. You don't sh- cut any of your hair. You don't touch a dead body. And you, you follow these practices as, as a spiritual discipline, basically, as a way of worshiping God. 
So they're saying if you pay for these four people and if you purify yourself in the temple just like they are, you're not giving in to legalism. You're not saying God only loves Jewish people or you have to be circumcised to be a Christian, but you are showing that you still care about and value your Jewish heritage. And so Paul is able to do that because they they clarify, James clarifies here, this is not a gospel issue. Okay, he's like, we've already written to the people saying you don't need to be circumcised to be a Christian. That, that letter he's talking about is from Acts chapter 15. And so what Paul has in front of them is, is this clear picture of a path of humility where he agrees with what James is doing or he has the choice to, uh, to kind of thumb his nose at these people who are more zealous for the law and try to stand up for what he has been attacked for. And again, the reason I love this passage so clearly on the heels of this idea of going to Jerusalem and suffering and dying is that the first death God asks Paul to do is to die to his own pride. He says he needs to humble himself, and by humbling himself, he will bring unity to this church that exists here in Jerusalem. And sometimes it feels like it'd be easier to actually die than it does to kill our own pride. Sometimes our own pride is the thing that keeps us from serving Jesus in the way that we should with all of this stuff. And so so this whole section is applicable to us because the ministry difficulties that we will experience, those challenges will require the same kind of humility that Paul used in this section. I wish we had more time to dive into what's happening here, but I think the point of this is, the main point of this is this idea of serving Jesus is going to bring difficulty. And that difficulty may include martyrdom, or it may include dying to your own pride, dying to yourself, and humbling yourself in order to serve those around you. So the question we have to ask then is, is how do we do that? Right? If we need to say we're not going to take the off-ramps, we're going to continue to endure in ministry, how can we find the kind of endurance that Paul has? And I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is at the center of your existence? Because for most of us, like I said a little bit ago, that what, what COVID did to all of us is it made our own needs and our own comfort the center of our world. And because we're so interested in caring for ourselves, the idea of enduring difficulty seems impossible. So, so the temptation to what, I, what we kind of want to tell each other then is, is get yourself out of the center of your life and put your calling in the center instead. Be, be like Paul. Be obedient to what God is calling you to do. But, but what all of that does, putting your ministry at the center of your life, of, of, it, it puts your own self-will as the, as the, the altar that you're worshiping at. And and your obedience will be dependent on how long you can muscle up and sacrifice on your own. And I don't think that's what this this passage is teaching us. I don't think that's what Paul was doing. Rather, what we need to do is we need to put Jesus at the center of our lives and follow his example and trust his obedience in our place even when we have disobeyed. Because because here's an interesting thing that's happened with this passage. Luke wrote this book of Acts, but he also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And if you compare the last days of Jesus with this passage of scripture right up to where Paul is arrested, we see that there is some incredible similarities. Okay, Jesus made three predictions that he was going to Jerusalem to die. Paul receives three prophecies saying he's going to Jerusalem in order to be arrested and eventually die. Jesus says he, in Luke it says he set his face towards Jerusalem. He was steadfast in his resolve. Paul is steadfast in his resolve to keep going. Uh, It's the plots of the Jews that lead to Jesus' arrest. It's the plots of the Jews that lead to Paul's arrest. Jesus is handed over to Gentiles. Paul is handed over to Gentiles, both resulting in their eventual imprisonment and death. And so so what's happening here is we're not saying Jesus is a better example than Paul. We're not saying like Sidney Carton from the Tale of Two Cities, just be like that guy. Try really hard to be a sacrifice. What we're saying is Paul was being like Jesus. 
And the reason he could be like Jesus is because Jesus had already walked that path before him. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Okay, the way that you don't take the off-ramp, the way that you don't grow weary or faint-hearted is by considering Jesus, by focusing on Jesus, turning your eyes on Jesus. That's the way that we can endure. And Colossians, Paul says, he's talking about Jesus, and he says, Christ, and as like a, an aside comment, he's like, Christ, who is your life? And then he tells them to endure and be obedient. Okay, that's the way that we will not take the off-ramp. It's not by trying harder on our own strength. It's by finding our life only in Jesus. Okay, I, I, f- I found that the last few weeks, God's been uh, pressing on my heart this idea of like, my life calling is actually pretty simple. Okay, step one is get all of your life from Jesus. Don't look to other things in the world to give you meaning or significance. Step one, get all of your life from, from Jesus. Step two is out of the overflow of that life, engage your ministry. Love people around you. Okay, out of the overflow of the life you get from Jesus, step two is love people around you. And step three is see step one. Return to step one. Do that. If you get all of your life from Jesus, the only way you can endure is by focusing on him and then out of the overflow of that, being obedient to his calling. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this passage and for the fact that we can uh, see what Paul endured and, and through this story see a clearer picture of what your son endured for us, uh, for our sake, when he became sin and took our sin upon his shoulders so that we could find forgiveness when we trust in him. So I pray, God, that as we endure uh, our hardship this week, as we endure difficulty, that we would not uh, be tempted to take those off-ramps to exit our ministries, but instead we would be faithful uh, to serve you out of the overflow of the life that you have given us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, this is a little bit longer section today, so we're going to have to cut into some of the discussion time that we have in front of us. But we do want to spend probably about five minutes at our tables uh, discussing some things. Uh, if you're new here, the reason we sit at tables is so we can, on a weekly basis, process what God has shown us through his word. So there's uh, three questions here. There's not time to get through them all, but the good news is our DCs, our small groups, are doing sermon-based studies this week. So if you are in a DC, you will get the chance to process these questions in much more depth in your group. If you're not in a DC, this is a great plug for a reason to why you should join a small group and you can uh, process these questions this upcoming week. So uh, first of all, as we have asked throughout our study of Acts, what ministry has Jesus called you to? What is your calling, your ministry? Where is God calling you to serve? Secondly, what does an off-ramp from that ministry look like? And how have you been tempted to take the off-ramp? What are the things that make you not want to endure? And what is quitting on your ministry instead of enduring like Paul did look like? And lastly, what tools has Jesus used to enable you to endure in your ministry these last two years? How, how is Jesus the one who has given you life and strength? So like I said, we'll do that for about five minutes, and then we will end this morning with a time of worship. Sorry to cut you all short. Um, we want to respect the time of the volunteers in the back. Uh, we practice open co- uh, communion here at Missio Day, so if you are a follower of Christ, you're welcome. We have a few tables around the room uh, to partake of that, and we also have an offering box in the back that is also another way we worship as well as singing, praising the Lord. Um, I do want to circle back just for a second to the book Tale of Two Cities 
And it's interesting how much has come from that book, but you've probably all heard this part. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. And that's how the beginning of that book starts. And it came to my mind when Colbert was, was talking about that and, and the drama that ends in that book. And I realized that's kind of true always. That's always been true in the world. There's always been some good. There's always been some bad. I just met a guy a couple weeks ago at an event out in Peyton that I don't think he's a Christian. Um, his name's Ron. If you think about it, pray for him. He is journeying into uh, the Ukraine to train people. He said it's, it's uh, electricians and carpenters and teachers and lawyers how to be frontline medics. And I w- I just hearing him talk, it really made me realize, okay, those people are saying this is the worst of times. And it made me realize the things that I think in my day, wow, this is a horrible day. My wife will say, how was your day? And I'm like, oh, it was great. <laughs> you know how that goes. But I really felt convicted that um, this is not the worst of times for us. And just to be thankful for the blessings that God's given us. And at the same time to realize that we as the church are the ones, because of the cross, that help in these situations. In these worst of times, he said the only place they could find a good night's sleep was in an Assembly of God church. They put out bunks for them. They were feeding them, keeping them... Just need, any need they had, the church was there to help them. And I, I take that as a, um, I say that, all of that about what we're t- about to do with communion. In that it's in the middle of the best of times and worst of times that Jesus came to earth. He came here and went to the cross because of these times that we live in. And the no hope, we had no hope. Short of sacrificing sheep with the Jewish people if you that was your only hope now we have the hope of the cross and as we remember that I want to read if you would stand with me from the book of Luke our author we've been reading through and think about the fact of the sacrifice that Jesus made to come to the cross and and also I mean I kind of I want to insert this in here it's kind of a probably an awkward spot but we just got word that a policeman up in Arapaho, Aurora, Arapaho was shot and killed this morning. So if you think about that, you might pray for him as well. Um, it's, there's always something like that going on, but the hope that we have lies in the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. This is from Luke chapter 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus, we thank you for coming and loving us so much that you would make this sacrifice, that you would not take the off-ramp, that you would not um, 
go to the place that you could be more comfortable. I pray that you would uh, be honored and glorified by the remembrance that we do now. In Jesus' name, amen.